are coming up subversely here with Dan Tsang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, we'll be uh, on the air shortly. Uh, we'll be uh, interviewing uh, a director of uh, film that's playing at the Newport Beach Film Festival. Hi. Um, welcome to the show. Hello. Can you hear? Um, let's see. Press one. Uh, today we're going to be interviewing a director of a film that's playing at the Asian Pacific Film Festival in Los Angeles. And um, with us is the director of Beijing Taxi, um, Miao Wang. Welcome to the show. Hi there. How Hi. are you? Oh, good. Yeah. Um, why did you make this film? How did I make this film? Why? Why? Oh, why did I make this film? Uh, why did I make this film? Because I grew up in Beijing and it's my hometown, but I moved away, I guess, when I was uh, 12. And, um, and I only went back every five years and witnessed how much it changed in the span of time. Um, and basically how I decided that I had to make a film about the changes in Beijing. Um, and then through that, I just I found the taxi drivers as my entry, the why, characters. Why focus on taxi drivers? I'm sorry? Why focus on taxi drivers? Why focus on taxi drivers? Yeah. Because, they, well, many reasons. Uh, one is they are very chatty and they are the entry point to a city so it's kind of like everyone's you know first first entry into any city i guess in the world um and specifically in beijing the taxi drivers are very very gregarious and lively and very much to me they seem very much like the quintessential beijing or characters personalities and so i and also i wanted to do a film about um, kind of the common citizen struggle in, like, how they fare in the changes going on in China and transition period in this era. So, um, you know, to look at everything from the ground level. Um, and then a third, another level with the taxi is um, the visual elements. It's a very visual. Yeah. Visually compelling motion uh, and yeah motion yeah. yes and you get to see just so many different parts of the city and it's kind of one of the only jobs where you you know get to uh, experience many parts of the city instead of just being in one part so it, yeah. it became a great metaphor and great just a uh, device for me to that's great yeah. show Beijing yeah was it a critique of the Olympics or the hype about the Olympics. I think it's not necessarily just a critique. I, I really wanted to show all that different different um, aspects of it because, you know, there was definitely um, a sense of pride, I think, all around for Chinese. At the same time, I think as with any Olympics um, that come to any part of the world, uh, it brings... It brings it brings a lot of th good things. Like the infrastructure, I think is great. That um, it built a lot of infrastructure that Beijingers are going to take, be able to take advantage of for many years to come. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it's very disturbing to a lot of people's lives. It's um, it dis disrupts a lot of people's lives and makes it very hard for people to live a normal life. People really made way 
for the Olympics. You they, know? Were, they were cleared, right? Their homes were cleared away so they could build. Yeah, I mean, that was also happening even before the Olympics, but the Olympics really accelerated all that. You know, it was it was happening in the 90s, you know, happening in the early 2000s, but um, the Olympics really accelerated that, accelerated that too well. Did you have to get Much permission? Fun, Did you have to get permission to film? Uh, I didn't apply for a, um, a journalist visa, so I'm, I, um, I have permission basically from the people that I'm filming and from the locations I'm filming, um, but not like a general government permission. Um, I mean, I kind of see it as the way that when you're filming the New York, you don't you have to get permission from like locations in New York, but I don't ask the U.S. government if I can film. So, also, I've talked to a lot of documentary filmmakers in China, and they basically always advise me to just um, go out there and film. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, we announced the uh, the showing is at DGA uh, Directors Guild of America on Sunday at six thirty p.m., and yeah. that's with the uh, Asian LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. Yes, and I will be there so um, to answer questions and introduce the film as well. Oh, great! Okay. Yeah, and and yeah, if any, um, you check out the website. There's a lot of extra material on there as well as uh, soundtrack and the score streaming. Um, and the website photos. is what is that's BeijingTaxiTheFilm.com. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll be interviewing another uh, director uh, shortly. So we um, are covering the uh, Newport Beach uh, and the Asian Pacific Film Festival in Los Angeles. Oh, hi, uh, Quinton. Yeah. Oh, hey, hi. Uh, you're sorry. on the line. You're on line now. <laughs> you're on the air. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, it's a complicated task here because we're doing a fun drive at the same time as uh, as uh, as our show. So, um, welcome to the show, Quinton. Oh, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm glad to have you all the time. <laughs> the, <laughs> the uh, yeah, I watch your film, and um, it seems to me that you, it is a quite a, a kind of a critique actually, and maybe it's a critique, or are you just having fun with uh, one night stands and long term relationships, um, poking fun at both of these concepts or these behaviors. Uh. Uh, well, I mean, like it's, it's a comedy, so it's definitely, definitely, it's definitely, a, definitely a comedic element to it. Um, and this I is think a, that no, maybe you could give the name of the film. <laughs> uh, the The people I slept with is the title. Yeah, of the film. I mean, yeah. Yes, the people I slept with. Um, can you hear me okay? Can I what? I hear like a bit of an echo. Yeah, there is some echo. Yeah, but uh, should I call back? I think it's okay now. Let's see. Um, it could be. Uh, it's fine. It sounds yeah, fine on the air. I think it's gone. It sounds fine okay. on the air. Yeah. And uh, what the, um, I was going to ask you, is it autobiographical, any elements of it? Uh, not really. Oh. It, it's not, yeah. It, it, it's more, it, it's sort of like, you know, obviously uh, I don't make movies that are autobiographical. Well, I make movies that are extremely autobiographical that becomes fictional. If that what if that makes any sense? Yeah, I think it's easier to write a fictional thing about yourself when you can, I guess, talk about people. <laughs> yeah, and I also name. didn't write the. Uh, I also didn't write the script. Uh, Koji wrote it, so I actually developed the script with the uh, actress Karen Anna Chung from Bella Tomorrow, 
and oh. that's sort of like how that's how the project began. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, how did you pick the actors uh, in the film? Uh, were they mostly friends? Or? Uh, Karen was actually a personal friend of mine, and uh, we met on Bella tomorrow, and then uh, in film, and then we lost touch for a couple of, couple of years, and then we met back again in a gay bar, and so we started hanging out and thought we should do a project together. Oh, cool. So that's sort of how the project began, and the rest of the actors are, are all people that we sort of like, you know, uh, different people that we we find. For example, like Wilson Cruz is a friend of a friend, and obviously he's famous for My So-Called Life, and he's also a bit of a gay icon. So yeah, he, yeah. he is friends of Chris Lee, and then somehow he connected us, and we got him on board. Then uh, Lin Chan actually, uh, I believe, might have worked with Karen, and, um, and she was in Saving Space. So she was someone that, you know, again, it's sort of like a friend of friend. Uh, James Shigeta, we also know through another friend, and obviously James Shigeta was a Hollywood film star. And he still does, you know, quite a bit of, you know, different roles and stuff like that. So yeah, flower drum uh, song and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah and Archie's on CSI, and he's he's actually friends with Koji. <laughs> That's how we met him. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, how about the, uh, the 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 theme itself? Uh, were you trying to um, um, because you know the media is always um, full of uh, men being promiscuous or sexually adventurous? Uh, you, you deliberately. Did you want deliberately to portray a woman in that role? Oh yes, absolutely. Because we want first of all, we want to we want to create we want to create a comedy around a strong female protagonist, and we just think that there are ways that females you know can assert themselves is through sexuality, you know, and that to me, to me, it's of like strength and it's interesting um, because if you look at like male sexuality versus female sexuality. Uh, male sexuality is often portrayed as much more aggressive than female sexuality. So, um, so that's definitely, you know, that's definitely what we want to do is to create like a, you know, promiscuous woman. But at the same time, we want her character to be real and also we want her character to be lovable. Yeah. And so that's why we, we sort of like, you know, we all sort of make this character kind of like fun. You know, she's having fun basically, you know. She seemed always to be in control in the bedroom, I mean. Yes, reasonably. Yeah, I think so. That's definitely the case. Yeah. And uh, uh, how about this whole thing about marriage? Then, why uh, was it? Um, were you trying to make a statement about straight marriages or gay marriages or whatever? Well, I think the film came at a time when we were developing the film. The film, a lot of the film was about with just right pre prop eight. So I think that we really want to do a movie. Also, between Karen and I, we were very, you know, obviously we were very, very gay positive. So we want to make a film also gay positive, and that's how the gay, the gay best friend character comes in. And we also want him to have a romance. He's not just a sidekick or something. So that's sort of how we have the idea of gay marriage, because we do want, you know, gay marriage to be legalized in this country. Um, then, obviously, the whole gist of the movie is really about her because at some point she, she realized that while, you know, getting married and finding, you know, being, being, leading a more kind of like conservative life is the way to go. And obviously she finds out that it's not true. So again, like, you know, there is that comparison between, you know, um, a very traditional heterosexual marriage, which can actually, you know, tie her down may not be right for her, versus, you know, a, a gay marriage, which is kind of new and, you know, so, 
So I think there is a comparison there. Yeah, but I'm not saying that one one should work and one shouldn't work. But it's just that you know. Yeah, I think it did paint a realistic point of view about you know, for instance, her sister's marriage compared, and then the 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 boyfriend who ex- is in this, uh, the guy he ended up, she ended up thinking was the father, or hoping was the father. The uh, the guy was from a traditional family, but he was I think, kind of rebellious uh, about that, about the controls the parents wanted to put on him, and so that came through. Um, the uh, I was glad actually you put Wilson Cruz in there because he he is a gay icon, and he's you know in uh, many other uh, productions. And um, was it hard to get him involved? Um, you know what he was. Uh, we were actually in Miami together earlier, and basically, you know, he read the script and he really liked it. And then, you know, we both, you know, we, I mean, he wants to get involved and we wanted him to get involved. So, so it was a pretty mutual kind of thing and, and, and that worked out really well. You didn't know, um, you didn't know him personally before, or you did? No, I didn't know him personally before. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. We met through, I think we met at the, we met at after, at the after party of Alec Mata's performance. Oh, oh, And that's yeah. how I met him. And then a mutual friend, Chris, introduced us. And then, and then, hey, I have a movie. Well, said, oh, sure, you have a movie. It's like, you know, how many times actors would hear some, you know, random guy, random guy come, came up, would come up to him and, and say that, well, he had a movie script. And then I sent it over to him, and he really liked it. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, he really is, is great in it. Um, also, I thought the the father was great. I mean, the father of the... the um, uh, Angelus was it Angelus' father? Yeah, Shigeta. Yeah, yeah. That character was uh, really cool, and uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing that didn't seem—it um, seemed kind of uh, too open. I mean, too acceptable was when the double marriage. You know, at the end, or so-called. I mean, I don't want to give away the plot, but uh, do you think? Uh, I mean, I guess the one family didn't show up, huh? So maybe it was. You know why? Do you th- would you speculate about why one family didn't show up for the wedding? Well, I guess they, they just didn't approve of the wedding. I guess okay. you know it was. Yeah, they just didn't approve of the wedding of of you know the main character. You know, Karen. I mean, um, Angela, Angela, and and the main lead in that size. I guess they didn't show up. You know. Yeah. And obviously, he came from like you know. I mean, uh, Archie's character came from a very conservative family. And they were um, like the other marriage also. <laughs> That's going on at the same time. So I guess the yeah. point is, I guess I should give away the movie, but I guess the point is yeah. that at the end of the day, we're still making a statement saying that, well, I mean, marriage isn't something that you just, you know, play around. It has to be genuine, you know. So in some way, that's a very, that's a more kind of conservative kind of statement. And that's why, um, you know, it, it's sort of like a bittersweet ending, I would say. Yeah. It's it's kind of a shock to her to find out she's pregnant because she has, she's been you know doing one night stands for a while has a whole stack of pictures of her uh, bedmates and uh, so that is a rude awakening I guess huh yeah yeah I think so it's, but but it's more about her just not it's not about her promiscuity it's more about like how she actually was just didn't take precautions you know. Oh yeah, and yeah. that was uh, her tragic fall. Well, it's not about her speaking with that many people, but it's just about her not being, not not having taken precautions in certain circumstances, you yeah. know, which was 
which is a tragic flaw, or which was a tragic flaw. You think if she, in the story, would she have just gone on uh, having sex um, if she didn't get pregnant? <laughs> um, you know, it's possible because we we talked a lot about that because when we're, you know, creating a character in the script, it's that, you know, once you get pregnant, you know, for women, you know, things change a lot and the horm- hormones and everything. So they, so it is, it is a transformative experience, you know. The body, yeah, it's, it really yeah. changes your body, yeah. yeah. So forget, also, yeah. Yeah, and also I just remember that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, another choice you could have is to have an abortion, which actually is what Gabriel says. And you're not ready to take care of the baby, you should really get an abortion. Um, but even I think that having an abortion, um, it, it, you know, it's a decision, I remember, just from, like, the women friends that I had, even from my little sister, that having an abortion, you know, is a serious decision. It's not like something that, you know, you just take a pill or something. Even taking a pill, you know, is a decision, and it's, it's an emotional decision, you know. Yeah, she said she didn't take the pill because she felt bloated. It was it was sort of a joke, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And then the other guy says, well, you look at you now. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, after you get pregnant. But, uh, yeah. So, um, how did you get uh, Edward Gunawan in, in the production? Oh, Ed was just, uh, you know, Ed plays, you know, Wilson's lover in one of the scenes. And um, I just knew Ed from many years ago. I basically known Ed since he moved to L.A. and he was sure. around and I thought, we were thinking of, well, because Wilson and I were discussing the character, we were saying that, well, you know what, a Gabriel's character, he should be like, you know, um, having sex with the rainbow. Like, all, you, we don't want him to just have sex with one race, you know. Yeah. So, so we're thinking just really diversifying that. And you can also see that in the in the partners that Angela takes. You know, yeah. we particularly diversify those partners so that it's not just she's having sex with an Asian guy or just a white guy or just you know a black guy or whatever. You know, um, yeah. in fact, what is interesting was that um, her, you know, the backstory of her was that of for Angela was that she was dumped by um, a very conservative boyfriend. You know, who is actually an African American guy. Oh. So, so, but we, don't, but actually, we didn't see that because the the scene ended up in the cutting floor because we, you know, because of certain some some issues with sign up to the scene. So yeah, yeah. So she actually, you know, she she and Gabriel, we wanted her to sort of go for the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. No, that's clear. I think in this in the movie, it comes out uh, in the film, it comes out that it's a very uh, kind of diverse uh, crowd. Uh, of people she ends up with, and uh, and even uh, Wilson uh, uh, Cruz uh, also uh, selects different types of people, and uh, yeah, it's too sh- yeah, it's too bad the that Edward was just a short time lover in the film. <laughs> in the film, it's just a short sequence, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, yeah. I think I think I think we struggle a lot with the point of view of the movie in some way because. Um, we obviously it's Angela's story, but at yeah. the same time, it's also we don't want we still don't want like Gabriel's character to, to be such as a sidekick character. You know, we want her, his character to be real. So yeah. that's why we have this kind of parallel romance that's going on. But um, but still, you know, everything is from Angela's point of view. Yeah, Angela stands out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Edward also also on the show uh, before in two thousand eight oh, about cool. his his own film 
uh, and his own, you know, he, he did some other film where he actually was the actor. He was also in bed, I think. And uh, was he in bed? I forget now. <laughs> but, uh, maybe I'm. I think uh, so. It was laundry, right? Yeah, yeah, laundry and and another one. They're two shorts, I think. Yeah. So, um, so that yeah, and he was a model for Frontiers, which is interesting because uh, the right now there's also a Newport Beach Film Festival going on. Yeah, and, uh, I heard about that. Yeah, and I I just went to see a friend and I went to see uh, um, uh, another film, and it was in part using front uh, Frontiers Cover Boy, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of ironic <laughs> to have it in the same time period. But this was about an online dating scene. Where the oh, where this insane. this guy went online and he didn't know his roommate had had already been on the computer, so he actually they opened his his roommate's uh, uh, chat thing and without knowing it was I, I don't know if that's possible, but without knowing it was his roommate's chat, so he chatted with this guy who liked him. It turned out the guy liked his the roommate's picture, and so <laughs> so ended up dating the roommate. So it became very complicated. Yeah. So whatever. So anyway, but everything worked out in the end. There was a sudden LA, and they used front. I asked. There was a Q and A, and I asked about it, and they they used Frontiers as a as the kind of the prototype of the magazine, but called it something else. Yeah, USA Too Gay is called. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So there was. Uh, so you, is your film set in set in LA, huh? Yeah, well, it's set in definitely it's set in the California city. I mean, yeah. definitely set in you know, but it basically can can be it can happen any any modern city. But somehow we have to pick a setting. So, yeah, and we shot in LA, so it is sort of LA in some way. How long did it take you to do this film? Well, we we developed the script maybe for like a year and a half, or almost two years, and then we started getting up investors, and we got financing like maybe in like six months or so. And then, so we we shot, we started shooting, um, I think, summer of 2008. And we shot for three weeks. Oh. And it's three, six, three six-day weeks. So we made it made the movie in about, like, 18, 18 days plus one day. We did some reshoots and pickups and stuff like that. So. Wow. Yeah, so it's been on the festival circuit for a while, huh? It started oh, yeah. last October, oh, 2009. Oh, oh yeah. I see. So we, yeah. we, finished, we finished the movie beginning beginning or middle of uh, 2009 with all the post-production work and everything and, and it started in the festivals uh, October 2009 so we started yeah. in Hawaii yeah and is it uh, going to other film festivals from here yeah definitely it's still it's going to Toronto it's going to the Toronto Inside Out Film Festival it's going to Vancouver again um, it's going to Dallas it's going to um, to uh quite a bit of other places, yeah. Um, but, but I'm just not going to be going to every film festival. When they, when you go to these, do they pay you to go? Do, uh, well, it depends <laughs> on the festival. Oh, I see, yeah. yeah. But I usually only go if, if accommodation and, and lodging is provided, and then on top of that, sometimes negotiate a, um, 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 like, you know, some sort of like rental fee or something. Yeah, but on, it, it goes from festival to festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, so for DVD uh, release will be coming out later then, huh? Yeah, hopefully mm-hmm. soon. We we have been we're still we we are still figuring out we're still figuring out some offers and stuff like that. But but we made a we sort of made a TV deal with Logo. Oh, um, so it's gonna be it's 
it's going to be airing sometime in the fall, late fall. So, um, so, and then we're now working on the other deals. Do you are you planning to stream the video eventually on some platform? Well, we we probably going to be doing the VOD, you know, VOD and um, oh, yeah. DVD at the same time. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask even you. With, even with streaming right now, that that streaming has like different. A lot of different qualities, different venues, and also like different price levels, price points for streaming. Depending you know? so on, it's actually very interesting. Depending on the format or what? What the price levels are depending on the format or or the the speed or whatever. Uh-huh. What do you call it? Yeah. Well, for example, for example, like the TV shows have like um, some TV shows you can actually watch them online. Oh, I see. And yeah. it's being free, so that's that's sort of like you know so. And then you have to, you, sometimes you, you can go onto Hulu and you watch something for, for like, you know, 199 or something. And you yeah. have to download, you can DOD through um, iTunes. Do you get the royalties from that then? Oh, that depends on license, I suppose. I, I guess you have to do, get a royalty from it. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. yeah, yeah. I know you put up the, um, an earlier, the recent sh- uh, short or film you did uh, on Hong Kong, uh, 0506. Hong Kong, yeah. you HK, you did um, you did put it online for a while, and now it's on DVD. That's actually on DVD now, but the distribution for that movie is pretty small because the it's like more personal documentary. Ah, yeah. So it's definitely like a it's, you know it's not really a profit making kind of thing, you know. Are you? Uh, why did you put it up online originally? Because I basically think that I want more people to see it, you know. It just went to, like, maybe five or six film festivals, and then I want more people to see it because the issue is about Hong Kong, and it's, 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 it, it is, for, some, for other people, I think Hong Kong is definitely something that they don't, they don't know what it's about, uh, you know. So I want, I, want, I want more people to see it as much as they can. So once the DVD, once the DVD came out, it was about to come out, and the distributor in Hong Kong wanted me to pull it. Because <laughs> they didn't want me to, to, to basically put the whole film on YouTube. So yeah, I think I found it in in that bookstore in you know the Kubrick's uh, Kubrick's bookstore in Hong Kong. Oh. Yeah, it was selling. There was at least one copy left uh, when I was there <laughs> in October. Yeah, Kubrick's is a cafe a film. Uh, it's an art house cinema in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Part of the part of the part of the Broadway attack. Ah, it has the best actually collection. It seems of I mean the depth of collection has a lots of DVDs there. Yeah, mm. but um, the uh, in the in that uh, uh, kind of self documentary, you uh, you compared uh, living in Hong Kong versus uh, uh, doing work in uh, L.A. and you decided to come back to L.A. Um, why did why did you do that? Well, it, it was more about me exploring because I'm already I was already living in LA and I was exploring the possibility of moving back to Hong Kong because because I don't know it just happens every ten years thinking that maybe you know, I should I be know. going back to Hong Kong. I know I have the same feeling. It's just like the immigrant <laughs> kind of thing, and you know you go, but then being there, you, I was just talking to different people and just about just it became more an expose in Hong Kong, you know, and I thought I have to put a decision. Sort of in the documentary per se, because it's sort of like reps, 
it's sort of like it's sort of more like an ending for the documentary. Yeah, and yeah. it was how I felt at that time. But, but that didn't mean that I'm not going to go back to Hong Kong. You know. Oh, I see. I mean, yeah. I, so, but it looks like that. I've been living here for like I don't know twenty years. So it seems like I, I'm actually living here. <laughs> how long have you been here, actually? Twenty. I've been in I've been in the U.S. since 1988. Oh my gosh! Yeah, wow. So to, it's I like. Yeah, I think I beat you by a decade. Yeah, <laughs> no, two decades. Mm-hmm. I came in '67, so if I'm Hong Kong, so yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I periodically I always think that I should go back there and do something. But um, you know, the longer it takes, the well, I don't know. Now they're actually, you know, there's more more uh, more positions open in terms of. They're advancing um, the universities that are turning into four-year universities uh, in 2012. So it seems like there's more opportunity there, you know, at least. But there's, of course, lots of people uh, who need jobs there. So Yeah, I yeah. think the opportunities actually are in China, but it's just how to exploit those opportunities, you know. Yeah. And obviously it's very exciting that China is actually becoming another United States, basically, except that... The problem, the problem I see right now is still, you know, I'm making Chinese films is that the con- certain content, those genres and content are still restricted because of the censorship system, right? So you yeah. can't make horror films, you can't make films with like, you know, prostitutes, you can't make movie, movies, anything but religion, with God and with angels. So you, you automatically, a bunch of the stuff that I like is really like, you know, I can't do. So that to me feels restrictive, you know? Yeah, for sure. What, what do you think is like the U.S.? You said China is I like the U.S. I guess it is becoming, the, the whole market economy system is oh, becoming see, yeah. very much like the U.S., you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think that definitely China, but China is opening up a lot more, you know? Yeah. Um, I think you can still do guerrilla theater. I mean, you could, you know, have a handicam and do some street stuff without them knowing you're making a movie, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that it's it's the consequence of something like that getting caught as a thing. It's kind of like you never know what the Chinese government will do to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you go back to Hong Kong, do you travel on a on a Hong Kong uh, ID or how do you get into Hong Kong? <laughs> or, how do I get into Hong Kong? I, mean, I, I don't want to talk about immigration. Stuff, oh yeah. Okay. But, yeah, we don't have to talk. About it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, Hong Kong is kind of unique in the sense it allows people who have Hong Kong ID to go back on on those papers, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, the, uh, do you see the scene as, I mean, it seems like the, is the government still supporting uh, independent film directors in Hong Kong right the now? The government doesn't support independent film directors. Oh, it doesn't? Uh I don't think they do. I mean, they have the little funding, but the independence... I mean, again, Hong Kong is a city of, like, seven, uh, 7 million people, so so it's very small, you know, compared to even LA, LA, and LA, LA, and you talk about... Oh. Because, because it is independent automatically, you know, you, you're actually a niche. So a niche in Hong Kong is a very small niche. So I think that that's sort of why it's hard, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that some of my independent filmmakers' friends do get grants from the government, you know. Yeah. They still have, they still have that, they still have that art, that funding yeah. agency thing, uh, yeah. Arts Council, yeah. And uh, do you, f- do you plan to teach at all? Um, um, get some so kind I plan of to teach, 
to teach. Uh, I'm open for teaching opportunities. I'm open to teaching opportunities. You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Have you, you've guest lectured, I suppose, huh? At different schools. I've done some, yeah, early, like you know, you, when I was like a grad student, I did, I did quite a bit of like you know guest lecturing stuff like that. But um, I'm totally open, so you know. Yeah. I think it's actually fun to teach because I kind of like you know I kind of like the whole whole campus life. It's it's really peaceful and not as um, <laughs> doggy dog. <laughs> you don't know academic politics, but <laughs> could be pretty intense. Depends on, you know, if you're just a, you know, guest lecturer, then it doesn't, you know, or lecturer even probably, yeah, less stressful, maybe, yeah. But um, wow, so um, so the film is playing in uh, L.A. on, uh, is it Sunday or Saturday? Uh, It's playing Saturday, May first. Oh yeah. 7 p.m. I believe, and um, yeah, there. At the Yeah, there'll be a. I think there's a red carpet that you can walk on. I think. <laughs> I I think so. I don't know. I they're, don't know. They're, about they're doing some press uh, hype about it too. Yeah. Oh. I just I just got an email today saying if the press wants to go to your film, you know, come at 6:30 or something, and yeah, and you oh, have cool. to tell them you're coming. So because <laughs> they <laughs> expect a crowd, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, screening is May first, seven p.m. at the DGA. So yeah, DGA is Saturday, Directors May Guild 1st, uh, of America. Of America. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, then, Quentin. Uh, oh, thank you. Look Dan. forward to seeing yeah, your film again. It. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you. Uh, that was uh, Quentin Lee, who uh, is uh, director of a film uh, called "The People I Slept With." Yeah, and so we uh, now have another guest. Uh, it, we will interview on the phone. We had just talked with Quinton Lee, who is the director of um, "The People I Slept With," which is a look at uh, straight and uh, gay uh, relationships, uh, one night stands, uh, long-term relationships, and marriage. Um, and it's a comedy, actually, about an uh, Asian woman who. Um, sleeps with a lot of guys and then realizes she's pregnant, and wonders who the father is. So that's the um, gist of that film. Although there's also a, another uh, parallel story going on with her best gay friend, uh, played by Wilson Cruz, the talented actor, and that um, ends up also in um, relationship. And so that's playing at on Saturday at seven o'clock at the Directors Guild of America on Sunset in West Hollywood. Uh, so that's part of the Asian Pacific Film Festival. And um, the other guest we're going to be talking with shortly will be hi Jarvis. Yes. Hi, you're on the line. You're oh. on the air, actually. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we have you on the air. This is uh, Ben Jarvis, uh, uh, who's uh, Member of Affirmations, which is the gay uh, Mormon uh, group. That's correct. And um, the group itself is features uh, in this new documentary um, that's showing at the Newport Beach Film Festival. Um, it's called Eight: The The Mormon Proposition. Um, why do you think they called it the Mormon Proposition? Well, 
Dan, as the name implies, uh, Eight, the Mormon Proposition, is a movie that explores the involvement of the LDS Church, or the Mormon Church, as it's more commonly known, in the Proposition Eight campaign. Um, I think at this point in time, people probably aren't surprised that the Mormons were involved with Proposition Eight. I think that's pretty much common knowledge. However, I don't think people understand the level to which the Mormons were involved, the amount of Mormon money that poured into the campaign, um, and just the very significant role that the church played in getting this measure on the ballot and pushing it through. Now, you yourself are gay, was a gay Mormon. and I am a gay Mormon. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, but you're just not a member. I thought you were ex-Mormon. Um, I'm, I'm an ex-Latter-day Saint. Oh, I see. So there, okay. Yeah, okay. There, there's a lot of confusion out there, but the Mormon community is actually much larger. It's oh, like the umbrella okay. community, and then the LDS Church is the largest sect or community uh, within the greater Mormon Oh, uh, I stand corrected. Yeah. Um, and you're a former UCI student. I am. Yeah. I am. What, what of, were you studying here? Uh, I was a member of the inaugural class uh, for the Urban Regional Planning Program back ah. in 1994. I was one of the proud ah. eight. Oh, wow. To yeah. launch that program. Social ecology. Uh, yes, yes. And um, were you gay then? I was closeted. Um, when I, you know, I went uh, to BYU, Brigham Young University, for my undergraduate degree. And, you know, I knew I was gay, but you can't really be gay and Mormon at the same time. And um, I spent a lot of years struggling and, and trying to change and just being very, very frustrated. When I came to UC Irvine, that was the first uh, environment that was gay positive or gay affirming to me. And uh, my first six months on campus, I I got to know other people who were gay. And you know, even more importantly, I think I got to know straight people who didn't care if people were gay. Yeah, yeah. And once the... <laughs> Uh, environment was safe. Uh, it's just kind of amazing how quickly things you know unfolded. Were you in? Um, did you were you active in any gay groups on campus? Um, I was for about a month before I graduated. I <laughs> <laughs> did that long. And you know, I don't really believe in regrets in life, but uh, one of the regrets I probably do have is that I didn't just find the gay and lesbian bisexual student union the first week and get involved there because they were a great group of people. What what percentage do you think? of the BYU student body is gay? You know, I think that it probably reflects, and this is just from my own experience, it probably reflects the community at large. Um, there are several people I knew at BYU who were gay or people that I suspected. Um, but, you know, that's not a safe university for gay students. Um, yeah, the film actually shows lobotomies, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, beating up people who are homosexual. And all sorts of terrible stuff. Well, yeah, and that, that goes back several decades. Um, thankfully, by the time I got to Brigham Young University, those sorts of things had stopped, uh, the shock therapy, the aversion therapy. And, in fact, the building that, that uh, those activities were conducted in uh, is no longer there on campus. It was torn oh, wow. down a few years ago. But, yeah, it's some scary stuff. And, you know, yeah. I'm the outreach person for affirmation. And when people need to talk to someone, I'm the person that they call. And I've spoken to many, many people through the years um, who were BYU students who uh, were entrapped or tricked. And, um, you know, in, in some cases, the people who called me clearly were not looking to hook up. They were not looking for any kind of a sexual experience. They were just looking for someone to talk to. And when they were approached and, you know, asked if they wanted to talk and they said yes, that 
in some cases led to arrest for public solicitation. So there, there's still outrageous things that go on, but thankfully yeah. the shock therapy is no longer one of them, at least not on campus. Yeah, in the film there's a survivor who actually is, uh, is interviewed. And yes. he, he manages to survive all this. Yes, and that's a very uh, powerful and moving story. And, um, you know, I know people that went through the shock therapy, and, you know, some of the stories are just crazy. I mean, one friend of mine had never acted on his sexuality. Um, he talked with his bishop, told his bishop he thought he might be gay. The bishop referred him to this program. And they wound up having him hitchhike to Salt Lake City to find his own male pornography to hitchhike back to Provo, you know, because the young man didn't have a car and then hooked him up to electro um, electrodes, you know, for his trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's turned out okay, and, you know, he has a good sense of humor about it, but there's really no way to candy coat some of the, the bad things that went on there, unfortunately. Yeah, and that was the norm of, in psychiatry, actually, at that time. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's important, to put it, it's important to put it in historic context. Yeah. So. Yeah, they show you erotic pictures and then uh, press some button, make you press some button. And yeah. if you don't push the button yourself, they will pr- you know press it for you. Yeah. So, okay. so but you know, with, with the film, uh, in, aside from you know the whole Prop Eight thing, you know, we have some of these personal stories in it, and yeah. um, I actually really enjoyed hearing these stories. Many of them were familiar to me. These are my friends and uh, people I respect who are in the film. Um, I was invited to be a part of the film, but just couldn't do it due to schedule conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a lot packed into this this film, and I, I you know I, I think it's a gem. Yeah, and uh, the stories they told were mostly uh, uh, kind of sad stories of coming out. You know, the parents rejected them, but in your own case, your parents uh, supported you, accepted you. C- correct. I I was very very fortunate. You know, my parents saw me struggling uh, through the years, and I mean, long story short. My second year of, of Irvine, mom just you know sat me down and said, you know, we've asked you repeatedly if you're gay, you keep saying no, but we know that you are. So <laughs> the know. sooner you come out, <laughs> the better <laughs> you know we're all going to be. And, yeah. and that um, were you 19 then? Or? No, no, no. I was 25. Oh, you came. Late. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I was a late bloomer. Um, I. You know, and I look around today and I see the gay Mormon kids who have the resources that I didn't have. Um, you know, I'm dealing with a 15-year-old right now, wow. uh, a lesbian. I have no idea where she lives in the country. You know, I, I don't know where people live when they call or email. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when I was 15, I thought something was seriously wrong with me. And, um, you know, thoughts of suicide were rampant. And, unfortunately, that's also fairly common in the uh, gay Mormon community. But, you know, I never would have had the courage to reach out and make a contact out there in the world and say, hey, you know, I, I think I'm gay. What do I do? What are my options? You know, do I tell my parents? Do I tell my bishop? You know, are there books I can read it? And, you know, it, it's wonderful for me to work with people now and and see that they have these resources and see that they're not going to have to go through the heartache that some of us older folks went through. Um, but it, it's still a very grueling, very difficult process. And again, you know, some of these stories are told in the film, and, um, you know, it's just heartbreaking. You know, one thing uh, in the film, that it raised questions about whether the Mormon Church should retain its tax-exempt status. Uh, is there any move to try to um, get rid of the tax-exempt status for the 
uh, church. No, no, there, there, there isn't. And, and you know, I, I don't know that I would be supportive of removing, me personally, yeah, yeah. that I would be supportive of removing the, a tax-exempt status from a church. However, because of what the church leadership did with Proposition 8 and going all the way back to Hawaii in 1998 with the uh, anti-gay marriage effort in that state, yeah, you know, I kind of think it's a conversation worth having, and this is really the downside of Proposition 8 that the church leaders did not think about when they, you know, waded into the issue. Um, a lot of people really didn't think twice about what it meant to be Mormon or the Mormon community here in California. But now after Proposition 8, no matter what the church does in the future, no matter how many good deeds it does, no matter how many uh, hungry people it feeds, how many poor people it clothes, it will always be known as the anti-gay church. Mm. And, you know, going uh, tying this back into the tax-exempt status, I'm willing to bet that a lot of the people who protested uh, after Proposition 8 there in front of the temple, Mormon Temple on Santa Monica Boulevard, prior to Prop 8, probably would not have had an opinion on whether or not we should tax the churches. After Prop 8, I'm guessing that they're maybe thinking about some things. Yeah, I mean, there could be, maybe there could be limits on political activity, you know, more more, more explicit on, on proposition specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, because right now they're, uh, limits on support of candidates, right? Right. But, yeah. So that's the distinction. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I always encourage people to become politically involved and to follow their conscience when they vote. And I remember growing up several times, um, we would be told that at church before an election. You know, the bishop or one of the other leaders would get up and say, hey, there's an election coming up. It's important to vote. It's important to vote your conscience. You know, please go to the polls and, you know, participate in the process. Very rarely, I mean, I remember the church, you know, giving direction when the California lottery was voted in. Um, but aside from that, I never saw the church do what it did uh, in Proposition 8, with the exception of other gay marriage um, votes, both here in California back in 2000 and Hawaii and Alaska and other states that they've been involved in. So, you know, the church, they wanted to, you know, jump on the anti-gay civil rights bandwagon and you know to me that doesn't really look like a good long-term long-term strategy but they didn't really you know ask my opinion before they jumped in well, one so. thing that always i'm curious about is why polygamy and after you die why why is that a big thing <laughs> um why is that important well i will tell you this driving around during the proposition eight campaign and seeing the Latter-day Saints that were out there on the street corners with their signs that said marriage equals one man, one woman. <laughs> I found that very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I come from a long line of Mormons. My family traces its roots all the way back to the beginning of the church on both my mother and father's side. Wow. And, you know, no matter what one wants to think about polygamy, um, the fact is polygamy is a part of my heritage and, um, you know, going back several generations, of course. When Utah wanted to become a state, um, polygamy was not viewed uh, in a positive fashion, to say the least, by the rest of the country. And so plural marriage, the principle of plural marriage, was suspended here upon the earth. But the church was taught, the members were told, that it still remained an eternal principle and that, in fact, you know, it would continue into the afterlife. And even today, in temple marriage, um, if a man marries a woman, 
for time and all eternity in the temple. You know, up here in, on Santa Monica Boulevard or down there in Newport Beach. You know, Newport Beach has a temple now. That couple is sealed together forever. Should the wife die, the husband can take another bride to the temple and they'll be sealed for time and all eternity. Now, to the Mormon mind, to the Latter-day Saint perspective, there's really no difference between life and death. That's just, that oh, transition see. is a veil. Uh. So here were these men, in particular, holding up these signs that said marriage equals one man, one woman, and it's just like, you, you, you don't even believe that. So but then again, yeah. you know, they probably never thought about it. Um, back to your question, you know, as to why we have polygamy in the eternities, it's just a Mormon thing. Well, we just—I just interviewed just another director on the—I I director on this phone, uh, on this ish, uh, show, uh, whose film is uh, "People I Slept With," which is about a woman that is polyamorous and yes. has to decide who the father is later <laughs> after he's, she sleeps with you know, dozens of men. So, uh, so that's a segue out of this show, I guess. <laughs> we actually come to the end of our time. All right. So, well, listen. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, yes, and, and you know, um, I'll keep in touch. Uh, and uh, the film is uh, showing at uh, on Wednesday, right? Right, at the Newport Beach Film Festival on, on Wednesday evening, and it opens in theaters in June. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Ben Jarvis. <laughs> Thanks thank very you. much, Dan. So the Bye. film sh he was talking was 8, the, pro the Mormon Proposition. So today we looked at film festivals, Newport Beach and Asian Pacific Film Festival. And you can uh, look at the uh, lineup uh, online on the Subversity's blog. This is Dan Sung with Subversity thanking you for listening. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessary. Those are the regions of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Also, today we are doing our fun drive, so you can write to KUCI.org and look at the banner there.